What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to Guest Friday on Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can follow the podcast on our social pages on Twitter and on Facebook. And you can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Great to be uh, back with you folks doing uh, another mailbag. We're doing a uh, spring uh, edition of Mailbag on this uh, Friday, March 10th. I want to say thanks to the uh, folks that submitted uh, questions. Uh, Not too many folks that submitted questions, but a number of folks submitted uh, multiple questions. So uh, looking forward to getting into uh, some of these question and answer. Um, So I think we are going to get right into it. Um, I do want to note, though, before I go any further, I will be making this announcement later this weekend, but I do want to make a programming note. I may have mentioned it last week that things may be a little bit different with the schedule next week. Uh, Still, we'll be doing the typical Monday episode, which will be out Monday afternoon, but then Guest Friday will be out on Tuesday, as opposed to Friday as I'm doing a Uh, March Madness preview, we will be taking a look at the brackets after they've been revealed on Sunday. So that episode will be out on Tuesday as opposed to Friday. So we won't have Guest Friday next week, the 17th. Guest Friday will be back on March 24th following the uh, special edition or whatever you want to call it, which would be the 14th. Um, So I just wanted to make that known. So I think we're going to get into these questions. So first off, we're going to start a couple of questions from uh, Michaela Tracy. She has two questions. Uh, One of them, I think, is a pretty simple answer. So we'll do that one first. Um, So her question is, or one of her questions is, is Joe Mazzula the Celtics head coach again next season? So I would say yes, Michaela. I think... uh, after the news a couple weeks ago that they had signed him to, or given him a, or excuse me, named him the uh, head coach um, and removed the interim tag. I think they had announced a contract extension of some sort. So um, I think, yes, he will be the coach next season. Um, And I think that it is good to kind of have that clarity with the Celtics that, you know, not that Ime Odoka was going to return, but I think just kind of giving the organization, organization, some clarity. Um, So I think, yes, Joe will be the head coach next season. Uh, Michaela's other question um, is, do you, do the Celtics keep Grant Williams after his rookie contract expires this season? So Michaela is a very, very uh, complex question uh, because I think there have, there was a report, I think earlier this week, that the Celtics had offered Grant Williams a four-year deal around kind of the low 50s um, in terms of the total amount. And, you know, obviously uh, that was, or Grant did not accept that. So I think most people have been hearing that, you know, he would like to be paid four years for about 80 million, which is, you know, about 20 million a year. So. You know, I think that it's a, it's interesting because Grant's not been a starter throughout his entire career with the Celtics. And, you know, is he thinking that I should be a person that should start in this team? And so I think then it kind of, it kind of becomes interesting because you know, Al Horford is signed over is signed for the next two years, but he's only making ten million. And I think could the Celtics transition Al to a bench role? And could Grant Williams be a starter? You know, and is that potentially what Grant is thinking when he says, you know, he wants twenty million a year? Does he want to be a starter? Because I think do you really want to be paying a bench guy twenty million dollars? And I think that that could be what the Celtics are thinking about that, you know, I don't think 20 million is crazy for a player like Grant, but I think that if he's 
going to be in the same role that he's in now, it doesn't make sense to give him $20 million. Um, I think if he were to be a starter, then maybe that's a different conversation. Now, if the Celtics choose not to sign him, then the question becomes, okay, who are some free agents that you could sign or someone you could bring in that could play a similar type of role? And I think that's kind of where I'm having issues is who could you sign for close to that amount of money that could give you the same type of role that Grant Williams gives you? Because yes, Grant's had issues this year. I think trying to do too much and trying to do things that are out of his skill set. You know, and I think the Celtics and he, I think, need to rein that back in a little bit. You know, he is a very solid defensive player. He's a guy that can knock down threes, you know, knock him down at a pretty consistent clip, you know, 40%. You know, and so the thing is, you know, then he becomes kind of a expensive 3 and D type of player. But if you look at some of the free agents this year, I'm not really sure who the Celtics could sign in, in, in place of that. And, you know, which one of these guys could give you the same type of defensive impact? You know, Jeremy Grant, Christian Wood, Harrison Barnes. They're some of the guys that are unrestricted free agents. Kelly Oubre. Um, just looking at some other guys. Uh, Cam Johnson, who is also a restricted free agent. Uh, P.J. Washington, also a restricted free agent. You know, I don't know who of those guys are going to give you the same type of defensive impact as Grant is. Um, I think the good thing for the Celtics is Grant is... Um, uh, lost my train of thought um grant is a restricted free agent so the celtics would have the opportunity to match any type of contract that a team would give him and so then i think the question becomes do other teams view grant as a 20 million a year player um you know i think i think what's going to happen is the celtics will bring him back you know, they might have to bite the bullet and pay him $20 million a year, you know, which I think might, may sound crazy to some people, but I think it's not really that crazy an amount of money for the player that he is, but I think it would be interesting what role, you know, is he understanding that he's going to have with this team? Because, yes, Al has been a tremendous starter with this team, but I think... As he gets older, do you want to start monitoring his minutes? You know, and is Grant someone that could slide in and start next year, you know, with Rob Williams? You know, I think that those are just some things that might be into, might come into consideration if, or, you know, come into consideration whether or not the Celtics sign him. So to answer your question, Michaela, I think yes, ultimately, I think that they do sign Grant. Um, but I think it's very possible that he's not on the team at the start of next year. But we shall see. So uh, we are going to move on. My good friend, Tarek Welch, a friend of the program who's been on a couple times, uh, submitted quite a few questions uh, for me. And so his first question, uh, jumping over to the Bruins with such a hist with such a historic season, what would be considered a successful season for the Bruins? Well, Derek, I think just to answer bluntly, I think it's a Stanley Cup championship. Um, I think when you put together one of the all-time regular seasons in league history, no one really cares unless you win a Stanley Cup. You know, I think it's one of those things that I think it's not going to mean as much if this team doesn't win a championship now. If you go back to start of the year, no one in their wildest dreams thought that this was possible for this team. Um, and so I think if you roll back expectations, you know, and you think about, okay, at the start of the season, 
what was going to be a successful season. And I think at the start of the year, people were like, okay, if they can maintain a 500 record while the injured guys are out and just kind of be around the playoffs, then they'll be okay. Well, they've, you know, jumped past those expectations in the first couple months of the season and really haven't looked back. So I think at the beginning of the season, it was like the expectation is okay. You'll probably be a playoff team. You could probably win a round, maybe two. But now it's like the Bruins really, I don't think, have a team in the entire NHL that really could beat them in a seven-game series outside of Carolina or Vegas, perhaps. So I think for it to be considered a successful season, they kind of have to win, you know, and I think the front office, I think, believes that, that this is their best chance to win. So that's why they went, you know, quote-unquote all in at the trade deadline to acquire some big-time players so that there's really, you know, no stone unturned for this team. You know, and I think this is also a team that's very focused, and this is their one goal, is to win a championship. You know, they don't care about the regular season points record or anything like that. This is a team that's a veteran group that all they care about is lifting the cup. So I think it's good to know that that room and that locker room with the guys, all they care about is winning. And so I think I don't, you don't have to be concerned about the players and where their mindset is. Um, but I think, yeah, I think for it to be a successful season, they kind of have to win the cup. You know, I don't think a lot of people are going to be satisfied if the Bruins don't get to the Stanley Cup final. And I guess, you know, you could make the argument that making the Stanley Cup final is a successful season. But I think for those guys in that locker room specifically, they're not going to be satisfied until they're winning the cup. So I think that's the easy answer to your question, Derek. So uh, Derek has a couple more, a couple on the Celtics. Uh, What is your panic level with the Celtics with their recent collapses? So, (laughs) you know, certainly the Celtics have had issues uh, holding leads lately. Um, I think, I think it's honestly kind of simple. You know, I think it's kind of their mindset, you know, and we talked about this um, earlier on the podcast this week that, you know, sometimes when they play with the big lead, they don't play with that same mindset. And it's very dangerous because, you know, it can happen, seemingly can happen so quickly. It can happen with, you know, such a little couple of plays, you know, that you don't hustle on a defensive sequence and a team gets an easy layup, you don't close out properly, and someone makes an, makes a three-pointer. You know, you're careless with the basketball, and that stuff can snowball. And so I think the panic level, I think, is real, that it's like this is a team that has had issues with this, you know, here and there for the last couple of years, and it's not specific to Joe Missoula, it's not specific to Ime Udoka, you know, I don't even think it's specific to Brad Stevens when 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 he was the coach. So I think, you know, my panic level is certainly there. You know, it's real. So it's probably a five. It's probably not as high as like a seven or an eight because I know this team is capable of playing the way that they need to play when they have a big lead. You know, I think that you look at that Cleveland game I think that that game is a little bit different than the Brooklyn and the New York game because they didn't have Jason Tatum. You know, they were a little bit shorthanded in that game. So when you don't have, you know, your star player down the stretch, you know, things can unravel. So I don't think that game really bothered me. But clearly, you know, the Nets game, they just played lackadaisical at the end of that first half and, it you know, it screwed them. So... It's, it's, it's definitely real, my panic level, but I don't think it's over the top because I think that this team can have a better mindset. I think it's all about the mindset. Um, so I don't think the panic level is as high as 
maybe some people have it, but, you know, I think, uh, if they can, if they can play the right way, they should be okay, you know, and this is, losing some of these games is not, you know, unheard of for this team this season. They've had, you know, issues this year, you know, losing some games in a row, you know, losing five out of six or losing three in a row. They usually have responded by winning a lot of games in a row. So, you know, we'll see what happens with the end of the season with this road trip that's coming up. Uh, Derek's next question about the Celtics. Do you think Derek White should be a part of the closing rotation? Um, so I think the easy answer is yes. Um, I think that you've kind of seen the, you know, quote-unquote closing group, you know, when you're in somewhat of a close game and you're trying to close the game out. You know, typically you're seeing Al Horford on the floor with Smart and the Jays. And then, you know, you've seen Brogdon on the floor. Derek White has sometimes played with that group, but I do think that Derek White is someone that I would like to have on the floor. I just think that the way that he competes, the way that he plays so well with pace, he gets to the basket very easily. Um, and I think that those are some things you could use to describe Brogdon too, that he's someone that can get to the hoop, you know, create instant offense. But, you know, I think it just seems like sometimes Derek is always making the right play, right play at the right time. You know, he's among the lead leaders in block shots by guards, you know, someone that is always going to compete, you know, and this isn't to say that Brogdon doesn't compete, um, but I just think that, you know, Derek, with some of the abilities that he has, should be on the floor, you know, more often and should be a part, you know, of that closing rotation or that closing group when the Celtics are trying to close out a game. Um, I think that, you know, with the however many games they have left, I think they should be, you know, trying things like that. Um, because I think you're not always going to be able to have that particular closing group every game in the playoffs. You know, someone might get hurt. Someone might be in foul trouble. So it's like you want to be able to have different types of rotations that you can use, you know, if, if something happens um, in the course of a game. So Derek has a couple of Red Sox questions. So uh, who are you most looking forward to? Or who are you looking forward to watching uh, this season? Uh, one pitcher and one non-pitcher. Uh, so I like the, the differentiation here um, because I think that there are multiple guys, um, you know, rotation pitchers or, or their pitchers, excuse me, or... Um, position player. So I think the one pitcher I'm looking forward to watching um, is Kenley Jansen. I think that's probably probably a popular uh, player to watch. Um, I just think that now with the Red Sox having a legitimate closer, you know, someone that has experience, has experience in a million types of situations, you know, is pitched in high pressure situations, um, I think someone that's just experienced, and I think you're going to see a better Red Sox bullpen this year, you know, and seeing someone that can close games, you know, not have to be concerned when you go into the ninth inning, who is going to close, you know, Jansen's going to be the guy. And I know that he's had some injury issues, has had some health stuff over the last couple of years, but I think just getting consistent closing pitching is really going to help this team. And I think is going to help this team be able to hold leads late in games that they really weren't able to do consistently last year. I think in terms of the position player that I'm looking forward to watching, you know, I feel like feel like it's kind of a cop-out, but I'm excited to watch uh, Masataka Yoshida, you know, to see how he acclimates to major league pitching. You know, it seems like the early returns are good, the way that he's performed in spring training. I think that he's performed well in the World Baseball Classic uh, for Japan. So I think I'm excited to see how he plays, you know, batting. I think you kind of have an idea of what he's going to be like. I think in the outfield, that's where I'm 
kind of interested to see, you know, if he's going to be in left, how does he deal with the green monster? Because that is not something that's easy. So, you know, I think I'm curious to see how he plays. Um, but I'm excited, you know, because I think he's someone that can bring some excitement to this team, you know, which kind of leads into uh, the next question that Derek submitted. Uh, how can we make this season enjoyable? Well, I think it's watching guys like that. I think it's paying attention to the guys that can make this team exciting, you know, and I think Yoshida is kind of the top of the list for guys that can make this team exciting. You know, Devers obviously is going to do his thing. We hope that Casas can do that as well, but I think it kind of starts and ends with Yoshida. You know, if he's a, a fun guy to watch, if he has personality, you know, I think that you've maybe heard or seen, you know, that this is a Red Sox team that is enjoying each other. And I think having a fun time in spring training. And I think if you can see that, you know, play out in regular season play, you know, it translates to, translates to wins, then I think this team is going to be a lot of fun to watch. Um, so I think it kind of, again, it, it kind of depends on the team's performance. You know, if they're not doing well, it's going to be hard to get excited. But I do think that, you know, the early returns on Chris Sale and Corey Kluber in spring training are good. You know, those are going to be the guys that you're going to rely upon a lot this season, starting pitching-wise. You know, I think that Whitlock and Brian Bayo are, I think, scheduled to be throwing soon. So, you know, I think that some of those guys in the rotation are going to be kind of interesting to watch. So, you know, I think it's kind of up to you uh, in terms of, you personally, as a Red Sox fan, whoever's listening, that, you know, however you want to make this season enjoyable, whether it's watching someone like Yoshida, whether it's watching possibly a young guy, you know, break out and see what he, what that person can do. You know, I think personally, I've been surprised at how well uh, Rymel Tapia, Tapia uh, excuse me, has played in spring training. You know, he's kind of been an exciting player um, in his career. So I think that you know, paying attention to certain guys and seeing how they do, you know, can be something to make the season enjoyable. So, um, again, it's kind of up to whoever's watching to make it enjoyable. So, um, we're going to continue moving through Derek's questions. He has uh, two more, both of them Patriot questions. Um, so, he asks, which position should the Patriots address in the draft? So, really interesting question because uh, I do think that it's going to somewhat depend on what the team does in free agency and in the trade market, um, you know, how they decide to address, um, how they choose to address different, different positions. Um, because I think that of the positions that they should upgrade, um, and speaking of that, actually, I, I wrote a recent article for uh, Musket Fire that was uh, posted yesterday about three important positions the Patriots should upgrade. Um, and so I think those positions that I highlighted, offensive tackle, wide receiver, cornerback, all three of those positions, the Patriots, I think, could address either in the draft, in free agency or the trade market, or both. You know, so I think in terms of what they should address, you know, it's hard because I think Offensive tackle is really where the team needs to upgrade. But is that is that a draft thing? Is that a free agency thing? You know, I think what the Patriots probably are going to have to think about is, okay, do you want to bring in a rookie to protect Mac Jones's blind side, assuming that that's what the thought process is? Are you comfortable with drafting uh, Peter Skronsky from Northwestern, uh, Paris Johnson from Ohio State, you know, one of those guys. Can you, you know, do you think one of those guys would be ready enough to contribute right away? Are you going to feel more comfortable if they sign someone like Orlando Brown from the Chiefs? You know, so I think that's one of the things the Patriots are going to have to decide. Um, wide receiver, you know, I don't think it's necessarily the deepest wide receiver class, but there's certainly guys that could help them. 
you know, um, and then, you know, cornerback, cornerback and wide receiver kind of depends on the decisions with Jacoby Myers and John Jones. Um, so I think, you know, all three of those positions, I really think that they should address. Um, but I think really it's, it's hard to know with this team. You know, it seems like every draft, there's always one position that people go into it not really expecting that they're going to address this position, and they do it. So, you know, I think it's what they decide is the biggest priority, which I think it should be the offensive line. You know, but then again, what is more important? You know, trying to teach an offensive lineman or offensive tackle to play at the NFL level, or do you want an experienced guy? So... I think it's really going to be dependent on what happens in free agency because I think if the Patriots sign, you know, a left tackle in free agency, I don't know if they're going to draft one. So, you know, it's a hard question, Derek, because um, I think that there are a number of positions that they should um, address. You know, I think linebacker, defensive end, they may want to look at or they may want to look at someone internally to help, you know, spell Judon and Josh Uche. So, yeah, could be any of those positions. Um, Derek's last question is, what are the chances Hopkins or someone similar ends up here? So I think DeAndre Hopkins has certainly been a name that's popped up uh, recently for this team. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, Belichick's conversation with Hopkins during that Monday night football game last season, you know, and then Bill O'Brien being hired, obviously Hopkins played for Bill O'Brien. Not really sure how that, you know, shook out with Hopkins being traded, you know, and maybe not getting along with Bill O'Brien. So I think that because the wide receivers in terms of free agency, it's not necessarily a deep group. And I don't really think the wide receiver group in the draft is necessarily deep. Not to say that they're not good players, because there absolutely are. But I think the Patriots may be more apt to look in the trade market to help their receiver position, you know, and help kind of boost it up. You know, Nelson Aguilar will probably not be back. And so chances are there's going to be a position that's going to need to be filled, depending what happens with Jacoby Myers. There could be a position that could be filled, you know, with the slot position. So I think the chances are decent. I'm not going to say the chances are high because you really never know with this team in an offseason. You really don't know what they're going to do. Um, but I think there are decent chances. It's, you know, Hopkins, Jerry Judy, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin. You know, you think about any of those names that could possibly be on the trade market. DJ Moore, possibly. You know, I think it honestly depends who's going to be available, uh, certainly. But I think there could be somewhat decent chances that the Patriots um, could end up with a player like that to help kind of upgrade uh, what they have in the receiver position. Um, I still think that they have decent pieces there. You know, Kendrick Bourne, I think if he's... Again, in a larger role, I think he can be good. You know, Devontae Parker, when he was on the field, he was an impact player. You know, I still think that there's something to be said for Tyquan Thornton, you know, emerging in his second year. So I think those are three guys that are almost certainly going to be on the roster at next season. You know, and then it's, does Myers come back? How do you replace the Aguilar position? You know, do you draft someone? Do you trade for someone? You know, it'll be interesting to see. So I think I'm going to move on. Appreciate the questions. Uh, appreciate the questions, Derek. I got a couple questions from my younger brother, Carter. <laughs> so uh, his first question, will the Red Sox uh, spring training success translate over to the regular season? So, I mean... <laughs> Just to be, uh, to be blunt, I think it's impossible to know um, because I think in a lot of these games, the Red Sox are playing guys that are not going to be on the team this year. And so it's like spring training is always just such a crapshoot because you have the established guys 
that play games, but then you have the non-roster guys or the guys that probably are not going to make the roster. And so it's like, you really don't know, you know, if it's going to translate. And I think that, yes, it's, it's great that they're, that they're winning games and they're doing well, but it is pretty hard to figure out, you know, because I think year to year teams can do randomly in spring training. They can do really well. They could do really poorly. They could just be okay. And it has, you know, no, no bearing on how they do in the regular season. So, um, impossible. I think it's really impossible to know. Um, I would hope that it does, you know, I think that, you know, being undefeated at this point is wild. So no, I don't think the Red Sox are going to be undefeated 12 games into the season. But I think, you know, it's just good to see positive, positive play and positive signs. You know, that's really kind of the biggest thing here. Um, so Carter's Next question, he has two about the Celtics, uh, similar to uh, Tarek's question. Um, and so his question is, how can the Celtics get out of their current slump? So I think it's a mindset, you know, and I feel like I've beaten this to death, but it's all about the mindset. It's all about having, you know, the mentality of, you know, we're going to go into games and the games are going to belong to us. You know, we're not going to have another team feel like they can play with us. And I know that 82 games, you're not going to be able to dominate your opposition every single game. You're not always going to be able to have the right mindset in every single game. But I think that this is a team that it seems like too often they get too comfortable in what they're doing and then they jump out to a big lead and they think, oh, okay, this is not something we need to try, you know, and that's unfortunate, but it's just, it may just speak to a larger thing in the NBA that, you know, and I'm not trying to say that guys don't play with a killer instinct, but it's just, I think sometimes it's just, you get out to a big lead and it's human nature. You know, you don't, you don't continue playing the same way that you play. But, you know, I think for them, it's playing with pace. You know, that's when they're at their best, when they're running up and down the floor, you know, getting steals, getting out in transition, getting to the basket, you know, moving the ball on offense, getting open shots. It just seems all too often that they get away from that, you know, for some reason. So, it's all about the mindset, and I think it starts with the movement on offense, you know, and I think when you do that and you get out and run, it you're more apt to try to get deflections, you know, and try to get stops, try to, you know, forcing a miss and then running up the, running up the floor immediately after you get the rebound. So I think it's, again, just kind of a mindset thing, and you know, for this team to get back to where it wants to be, it's playing with pace, you know, playing playing the way that they want to play um, and not letting another team, you know, you know, dictate how they're going to play. So uh, Carter's next question is, why do you think uh, Jason Tatum's been struggling so much recently? So I think that it's... It's interesting because I think that, like, looking at his numbers recently, I don't know if he's necessarily struggling a lot. You know, I think that, yes, there have been some games where he's struggled, absolutely. Um, but I think... The game, the games where he struggled, you know, from the the games that he struggled, quote unquote, I think are the games where he's struggling shooting the ball from three specifically, um, and I think that that's kind of where you get the idea of him struggling. Um, and there have been some games since the All Star break, you know, that I'm looking at that the shooting from three for specifically is not where it needs to be. You know, three for twelve. 1 for 9, 0 for 7, 6 for 17. 
I think that, you know, those are the types of games where the Celtics need him to be more aggressive and go into the basket. Um, and I do think it's interesting because I think I've looked at some of these games where Jason has not shot well from three and he doesn't get to the free throw line. So looking at three games in particular, the Sixers game that he hit the go-ahead three that won the game, you know, that was obviously a big shot at a big time. You know, three for eight shooting threes in that game, which is a decent percentage. But he only went to the free throw line twice, one for two. You know, the next game against the against the Knicks, one for nine shooting threes, one for one at the free throw line. You know, the Brooklyn loss, 0 for 7 from 3, 2 for 2 from the line. And I think it doesn't mean that every single game he shoots too many threes that he's not getting to the free throw line enough because the 6 for 17 game against the Knicks, he was 10 of 12 from the free throw line, which is good. You know, you want him getting to the free throw line that many times. Um, so I think in terms of him struggling... I don't know if it's necessarily like he's struggling so much over the last, you know, handful of games since the All-Star break, because it was interesting. I looked at his uh, game logs in the games that he has played since the All-Star break, where, you know, people, I think, seem to think that he's in a little bit of a slump. And he might be, I think, shooting threes, but looking at the statistics, so for this season, Jason has played 62 games has averaged 30.3 points, 8.8 .8 rebounds, 4.7 assists, 36% uh, from three-point three point range, 46% from the field, 85% from the free or 86% from the free throw line. And if you look at the numbers over his last seven games, uh, post All-Star break, you know he is averaging 28 points. Uh, 20 points, 11 rebounds, 6 assists, which, you know, pretty similar to the numbers that he's posted this season. You know, the rebounds and assists are actually a tick higher over the last seven games. Three-point percentage, 33%. So that's kind of where you're down, obviously. You know, if you have games that you're over 7, 1 for 9, 6 for 17, but his field goal percentage is 45%, which... Obviously, is lower than 46, but, you know, it's pretty much online for his stats this season. So, I think saying that he's been struggling so much might be a little bit of an overstatement. But I do I do think that he is shooting too many threes. Um, and I think sometimes he falls into the trap of trying to shoot himself back into the game where if he's struggling shooting threes, he's just going to keep doing it. And I think... He needs to get back to the getting to the free throw line. Um, and this season, he's getting to the free throw line a lot. You know, I think he's averaging, I think it's over eight free throw attempts per game, which is the highest it's been in his career. But I think he needs to get to the line more. You know, I think that this is this might sound crazy, but he needs to get to the line like an annoying amount of time. He needs to get to the line like Joel Embiid. You know, they're always complaining that he gets too many free throw attempts, especially when he's playing the Celtics. Uh, Jason's got to do that. He's got to be annoying. He's got to be drawing fouls all the time. And I think he's good at it and he can get to the line a lot. You know, he's had some games recently, you know, some of them pre all-star break where he's getting to the line 12, 14 times a game or, you know, 12 or 14 attempts per game. So, you know, it's going to be, interesting to see how he plays down the stretch but I don't think I'm necessarily concerned because I think looking at those numbers over the last seven they are pretty similar to his statistics this season so you know you hope that the three-pointers he can be a little bit more efficient you know he doesn't have a game where he's shooting 17 of them but you know I think it's uh be interesting to watch how it uh or how it how he plays the rest of the year. Um, so we got a couple of questions uh, from Ryan McNeil, a good friend of mine. So he has a couple of Celtics questions. As you can tell this week, the Celtics are a very popular topic of conversation. 
Uh, so Ryan's first Celtics question, is Derek White an underrated slash underappreciated member of the Celtics? Yes, Ryan, absolutely he is. I think that uh, this season in particular, Celtics fans have grown more of an appreciation for him. Um, I think just how well he played in particular when Marcus Smart was out for, you know, the 8, 10, 12 games, whatever it was, um, and he stepped in and played tremendously, you know, was was a player of the month, player of the month, player of the week, whatever it was. And, you know, I think that he's been tremendous because he's done everything the Celtics could ask him to do and more. You know, I think that he's improved his defensive game um, in terms of, you know, blocking shots as a guard. You know, it's tremendous to see him, you know, always hustling. Um, so I think, yeah, he is a little bit, I would say he's probably more underrated and underappreciated because I think Celtics fans are very smart and understand that he is a huge part of their success. Um, and I think there are a lot of people, including myself, that would like to see him on the floor in big time moments, you know, which goes back, which goes back to uh, Derek's question about him being part of the closing rotation. So yeah, I, I would say definitely Ryan. So Ryan's next question, can the Celtics have playoff success slash win a championship if Rob Williams is hurt? So <laughs> it's certainly an interesting question, Ryan, because uh, I honestly felt like the Celtics played, you know, had great playoff success last year and Rob was not necessarily 100%. So you know, I'm assuming, Ryan, that this question is if he's out of the lineup, you know, and can the Celtics win a championship without him? I don't think so. I think that he does need to be healthy and I think does need to be in the lineup a decent amount for them to win a championship. He just makes such a difference on both side, both ends of the floor. Makes things easier for the, off for the offense. You know, he can be a lob threat. He can be a guy that you can give the ball give the ball to in the low post. And he's a great offensive rebounder and can get those second chance second chance points. You know, gives you a rim protector. You know, gives you someone that is an athletic defender. So when he's not in the lineup, you know, the Celtics lose a little bit of the rebounding, losing a lose a little bit of shot blocking, you know, and I think you can see some of the games recently, they've had a lot of trouble with corralling rebounds that other teams have been able to get offensive rebounds and get second chance points. And so it's like, I don't think the Celtics can win a championship if he's not available most nights. I think that he needs to be available for them to win. Um, and I think it's, you know, with this recent hamstring thing, you just want him to be close to 100% and not missing games in the playoffs. But, you know, you can't help it sometimes. You know, he missed a number of games um, in the early rounds. Last year, obviously, he was coming back from a long-term injury. You know, this is a little bit different. He probably should be in the lineup by the time the playoffs start. So it's not like he's going to have to, you know, work his way back like he was last year. So, you know, I think it's, it's definitely a question this team if Rob can stay healthy because he's not really had the best injury luck over the last couple of years so you know it'll be interesting to see if he is healthy you know he would you would hope that he is because he does make a huge difference for this team so uh, Ryan's last question which is a Patriots question and it's been a question that uh, has pretty much uh, been on a lot of people's minds this week um or, or a topic, I should say, that's been on people's minds this week with uh, Lamar Jackson and the Ravens and him signing the non-exclusive franchise tag, which gives other teams the ability to negotiate with him. So Ryan's question, how much would you be willing to pay Lamar Jackson to come to the Patriots? So Ryan, this is a really complicated question because I don't think it's as simple as that question. You know, I think that you know, the interesting part is what I think is 
the Ravens have had around two years to negotiate with him on a new contract, and they've not been able to. And I think this is just me speculating that I think the Ravens want another team to negotiate for them, and they will wait for another team to sign him to a contract that they can then agree to. You know, I think that that's what's going on. And I think the tough part is there's a number that I would pay Lamar Jackson. But I don't think that it's relevant because I think if you pay him whatever that number is, the Ravens are going to say thanks. Thanks for signing him for us. And so I just feel like it's kind of irrelevant. And I think the question shouldn't be how much would you be willing to, it's how much is going to cost. And I think like you're going to have to blow the Ravens out of the water, you know, pay him the highest amount a quarterback's ever been paid. I don't think I want to pay Lamar Jackson that much, you know. And I think in terms of a specific number, you know, it's hard because there's so many quarterbacks that are making so much more money that I think Lamar Jackson is far and away better than, you know, I would think you know, somewhere in the 40 to $45 million range. But then again, it's like, if you if you give him that much money, the Ravens are probably going to match it. So it's like, you're going to have to go above and beyond what the Ravens are going to be willing to, to give him. So it's like, I think it's, I wouldn't pay him the highest amount, you know, per quarterback in the league. You know, I wouldn't pay him like, like he's, the best player or best quarterback in the league because he's not like Patrick Mahomes is probably the only guy that I'd be willing to write like a blank check for so to speak I think Lamar is a great quarterback you know he won MVP and I think that there's no reason that I would sit here and tell you that he's not a great quarterback but is he the best quarterback in the league? No. Is he deserving to be the highest paid quarterback in the league? The highest paid quarterback in the league history? No. Honestly, no. So, you know, I think, Ryan, to answer your question, it probably would be somewhere between the 40 or $50 million range per year. But then again, I think that Baltimore would just would just match that contract. So that's what I think. Signing him to an offer sheet is pointless because if you sign him to something favorable, Baltimore is just going to say, thanks, we'll match it and we'll have him for that contract, you know, or you're going to be paying him an exorbitant amount of money, which is going to be way more than you could possibly imagine. You know, upwards of 50 million is probably the amount that you'd have to pay him. So I'm not comfortable paying someone that, you know, Patrick Holmes might be the only guy I'd be willing to pay that month, pay that much money for. So I think hopefully Ryan, that, that answers your question. Uh, we do have a last question from a friend of the program, Evan Greasing, uh, who was on the program a couple weeks ago, uh, as we started talking Red Sox. Um, and so Evan's question is, uh, what do you make of the Red Sox undefeated start in spring training? What does it mean, if anything? So I think I've covered it a little bit in terms of, you know, it's good. It's positive. It's exciting. You know, it's just, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, I kind of chuckle because it almost is not allowed that you are, in terms of being a fan of, you know, things that are good and things that are positive, it's almost not allowed in this, in this area where, you know, certain members of the media are going to get on you if you are excited about anything, you know, even, even something as stupid as meaningless, regular, meaningless spring training games, which it's like, again, I don't know if it's a indicator of their success in the regular season. It probably isn't, but it's just, can't we just like have fun with something that really doesn't matter, you know, it's not worth getting upset about. It's not worth making fun of people for having a good time watching this team play well in spring training because in some people's mind, you know, 
this might be the only chance that they're going to get to be excited about the Red Sox this season. So I don't know if I make anything of it, Evan. It's just, I think that it's fun. It's good that they're playing well. It's good that certain guys are getting off to good starts. I think that to get into the second part of your question, what does it mean, if anything? I think that, you know, when you think about spring training, to me personally, it's kind of all about individual guys, not necessarily about team success. It's how do certain guys get off to, or what kind of starts do certain guys get off to? You know, are they hitting well? You know, whoever's pitching, are they doing things that we want them we want them to be doing? Are they pitching the way that we expect? You know, so I think in terms of regular season success, it doesn't really mean anything, but I think it could mean something for individual guys if they're getting off to good starts, that it gives them confidence to go into the regular season and be like, okay, I started well in spring training. Let's keep doing things the way that I've been doing things, you know? So it'll be interesting to see definitely over those first, you know, 10 or so games, um, how the Red Sox do. You know, the good thing is they're not playing a lot of good teams. So there is a good chance that the Red Sox could get off to a good start, kind of build on the momentum that they've built. Um, but I think hard to be super, super, you know, thinking that, oh, this means they're going to be a playoff team. Because like I said, the spring training rosters are filled with guys that you're probably never going to see again playing for the Red Sox, you know, mixed with guys that are going to be everyday players for the next couple of years. So, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens, like I said, but, you know, I don't think I would read too much into it, but then again, you're allowed to have fun. I will tell you on this program that we are a pro-fun podcast that you are allowed to have fun rooting for your favorite teams and no one else should be able to tell you differently. But, you know, that's just kind of the end of that, that rant. But um, I think that's going to take us to the end of uh, the questions. Thanks to uh, the folks that submitted questions this week. Uh, really looking forward to, I uh, guess, Friday and the program next week. So that's when we'll talk to you. And uh, yeah, everyone... Absolutely. If you haven't already, follow the Twitter page, follow the uh, Facebook page, um, and then listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know, drop a, a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be great. Let's me know how I'm doing. Um, and yeah, everyone, we will uh, talk to you next week.